Right now, switch your family to T-Mobile and get four lines for $25 a line with AutoPay and 5G access included on America's largest 5G network. So don't wait. Get unlimited and nationwide 5G access for the whole family for just $25 a line. Visit a T-Mobile store or T-Mobile.com today. Plus taxes and fees. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using over 50 gigs a month due to data prioritization. Video at 480p. Unlimited while on our network. Qualifying credit and four plus lines required. Capable device required for 5G. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain features. See T-Mobile.com. The Leslie Marshall Show. A true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, DC, and a political analyst for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about me uh, or my polling company, uh, Bannon Communications Research, or if you have any ideas or suggestions for Deadline DC, uh, the best way to reach me is on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is at Brad Bannon. Welcome to all of you watching me on Twitter or Periscope. Now everyone can watch the show by going to periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. You can also watch the show on Facebook Live. It's only a week before the start of the Democratic National Convention, so we'll focus on politics today, and there's lots to talk about. Our guest in the first half hour is John Nichols, who writes for The Nation. In the second half hour, we'll have Bina Venkatraman of the Boston Globe and political activist Mark Grimaldi uh, on the provocative progressive political panel. Our guest in the first half hour is John Nicholas, the political court, national political correspondent for the nation, home to tenacious, muckraking, provocative commentary, and spirited debate about politics and culture. The nation empowers readers to fight for justice and equality for all. John is also the author of a new book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. Well, that must be quite a fight, isn't it? <laughs> It really is, my friend. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that today. Let's start off uh, any time now. Uh, Joe Biden is going to announce his uh, pick to be his running mate. What do you think's going on there, John? Well, I expect that by this point, Biden has made his choice. And uh, there is, as you well know, uh, a lot of choreogra- choreography that surrounds the announcement of a vice presidential pick. And I think especially in this complex year, with COVID-19 and all the other challenges that we face, that choreography will be particularly complicated. But my sense is that sometime in the next few days, you will have an announcement uh, coming out of Wilmington, Delaware. I expect the vice presidential candidate will make the trip to Wilmington so they can actually 
be physically in the same place. That's a little challenging in these times. But I, I hope think they're they, at least six feet apart. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, maybe they can fist bump from afar. Yeah. But uh, but uh, and I'll be blunt with you, if, unless I'm missing something, I suspect and that's different than saying I know. I suspect that the nominee will be uh, Kamala Harris. Yeah, it's uh, looking that way. Well, let me ask you, uh, in the last, you know, two weeks, uh, there's been a lot of speculation about uh, Representative uh, Bass from California, uh, who's chair of the Congressional Black Caucus and also very progressive, and also the Obama National Security Advisor, Susan Rice. It seemed to me that, you know, I mean, Harris has been on top of the list the whole time we've been speculating this about this for the last few months. Uh, but it seems to me that every time it looks like Harris, uh, I guess someone within the Biden camp says, well, before we go that way, let's take another look at Bass or Rice. What do you think's going on there? I think you're exactly right. I think you nailed it. And here's what what's really going on. Uh, Kamala Harris is an incredibly effective prosecutor. You may agree with her on some issues, you may disagree, but she's very, very good at that. And she prosecuted Joe Biden in a debate and yes, she did it really effectively. And the, the simple reality is that I think that some in the Biden camp, I'm not necessarily sure that this is Biden himself, but I think some in the Biden camp uh, really resented that and uh, didn't particularly like it. Uh, and so there has been a resistance to her. It may, there may be other factors. I accept that. Um, but the bottom line is that uh, there's always been a, an effort to look at other, other figures, other candidates. And, um, and I think the interesting thing that happened was that as we got toward the close, there was a, a twofold thing going on. First, Biden had said he was going to pick a woman. And then there was a, a lot of uh, signaling from activists African-American women and people from across the spectrum saying, you know, at this moment in history, it's a really good idea to select an African-American running mate. And so that uh, caused the Biden camp to start looking at a variety of candidates, all of them highly qualified, uh, but not folks that maybe they had thought about before. Uh, and it did bring people like Susan Rice way up the ladder. And I think it brought Karen Bass to their attention. It's not that they didn't know who she was, but I think they really started thinking about her as a possible nominee, especially after she took the lead on some of the legislation coming off the George Floyd killing and uh, really became a, a, a key figure in the congressional response to that. So Bass moved up very, very fast. I think she had advocates in uh, Biden's inner circle. I also think she had advocates in Congress. She is extremely well liked. And I think she had a lot of advocates in the progressive community, many of whom continue to advocate to this day for her selection. That made her very viable. But as you well know, in moments like this, when somebody appears on the on the radar and starts to be examined as a potential running mate, you get all of the attacks. And, and Bass has faced a lot of attacks. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, there seem to be a number of progressives in the party, including uh, uh, delegates and mainly at a lot of them from California uh, who are not happy 
with uh, Kamala Harris. They feel she's uh, too pro-law and order. She's too pro-police. She was too zealous a prosecutor. Uh, they were pushing uh, Karen Bass. Uh, if Biden does, as we expect, announce that Kamala Harris is is the uh, running mate. Uh, do you think there's going to be a lot of blowback from progressives in the party? It's a very good question. Um, remember, there are also progressives who liked Elizabeth Warren as a prospect and um, and some folks who even talked about a variety of other candidates. So when you pick anyone, you're going to always get a little bit of second guessing and, and push and pull. But I don't think there will be as much blowback as as you might have had in a, a more traditional political year. The fact of the matter is this convention is coming late in the game. Uh, we're already headed toward Labor Day. I know people who are enjoying their summers may not like that that page of the calendar, but we are we are heading toward Labor Day. The fall campaign is really you know kind of at our door, and my sense is that there will be. An initial round of uh, scrutiny, complaints, concerns, but that will pass very, very quickly. Uh, I think the uh, the unity as regards the ticket will probably be pretty high. It may be at the convention that you get some votes some for another candidate. That happens quite often, and I've heard people say that they might vote for Barbara Lee or for Karen Bass or for uh, Nina Turner or for a variety of other prospects. And, and that happens. But at the end of the day, my sense is that, that Biden will make his pick. Uh, he will go forward into this bizarre convention, which is essentially a Zoom meeting. Uh, and then where there will be percent, potentially some push and pull might be more around the platform, because I do think there's quite a few people uh, who think the platform doesn't go bold enough on Medicare for all and the Green New Deal. And my suspicion is that may be where you see more of a battle. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think the big issue, as you said, is probably going to be Medicare for all. Uh, there are a number of uh, Sanders delegates who are making a big push uh, for Medicare for all. But I assume uh, the platform, as uh, it was uh, drafted by the uh, majority of Biden forces, is going to hold up without a Medicare for all. Do you think there's going to be a lot of unhappiness about that? There, there will be dissent. I suspect that a number of folks will vote against the platform. You know, when they have the when they have the vote, if indeed they do. I mean, we're still trying to figure out exactly how they'll do roll call votes and things like that. But if there is a vote, I suspect you'll get a, a substantial no vote, and it will be um, as a sign of of support, really, for Medicare for all, rather than anything else. Okay. We're going to go to break now uh, for our audio listeners, for our video listeners. We're going to continue uh, our interview with John Nichols from The Nation. Uh, if you're an audio listener, uh, you can always sign up uh, for the video portion of the show at periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. Uh, we will uh, be back in a couple of minutes for our audio listeners, for our video listeners. We're going to continue this interview John Nichols.
political correspondent for the nation, John Nichols. Uh, John is the author of a new book called The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. Uh, let's switch topics, uh, John. Uh, over the weekend, uh, the president, uh, with the single stroke of the pen, did what Republican uh, Republicans have been trying to do for 80 years uh, and basically butchered Social Security and Medicare uh, by eliminating the payroll tax, the funding mechanism. Uh, and I'm sure uh, hard right Republicans uh, must be rejoicing today uh, because this is something your Republican Party has been trying to accomplish ever since uh, Roosevelt proposed the program during the New Deal, and poof, it's gone. Uh, now, there are a couple of ways of looking at this. Uh, one is Americans will credit the president for taking strong and decisive action uh, to provide some economic relief, or B, uh, he will get pilloried uh, for destroying uh, a program icon, uh, Social Security, uh, which has worked well uh, for uh, four-fifths of a century. What do you think? Well, Brad, well, Brad. I'm going to give you an, an answer that is, uh, and you'll appreciate this, both. Yeah. The, there's, Republicans will be running around saying, wow, you know, here's Trump. He's delivering for the people that that are struggling. Uh, and why would Democrats criticize that? And of course, Democrats will say, well, the reason we're criticizing it is because you're kicking the, the legs out from under Social Security. And um, and so it'll, you know, everybody will try and game it. I'm surprised this isn't a bigger issue right now. I think people are still wrapping their heads around it. In the yeah. next few days, I think it's going to get bigger and bigger. And uh, I suspect Trump will back off. On some of his language, I don't. I think he's going to be very careful about this, especially if a congressional deal of some kind on a, a stimulus package is reached. But I want to emphasize something, Brad, and you will. I, the second I say this uh, or ask you this question, you will know the answer to a lot of a lot of the debate about this. Who's the most likely voter in America? Excuse me. Who's the most? Who's what kind of likely voter? What what group is most likely to vote? Seniors by far. Yeah. And yep. who gets no benefit out of a change in the payroll tax, but gets a lot of scare out of yeah. something that matters Social Security. So I think at the end of the day, this issue plays very bad for Trump. Yeah, well, one of the things uh, that's been interesting looking at the polls is one of the reasons Joe Biden's doing so well is he's doing a lot better with seniors than Hillary Clinton did uh, in 2016. And that was one of my first thoughts when I uh, heard about the president's actions is uh, this is going to make his weak position with seniors even worse than it is now. You're exactly right. And then check this out. Of course, he's in a weaker position with seniors than than some previous Democratic nominees. He's in as strong or stronger a position with young people as yeah. previous nominees. So uh, here you have the uh, and the young people are opposing him not because it's not payroll tax issues and things like that. These much more issues that that a lot of young voters are energized by uh, the climate racial justice, uh, a host of other issues on which Trump is terrible. And so you end up in this situation where it's very unlikely that young voters are going to uh, Trump. And it's now increasingly likely that older voters may shift against him. We are starting to look at an almost perfect storm. I'm not saying it will happen, 
that's something we got a whole campaign ahead of us. But boy, if Trump is running weak among seniors and young people are energized to vote against him, he and then you get your normal split among middle aged folks. He's in terrible shape. Yeah, he is. Let me ask you another question. Uh, one of the reactions I had when I heard about the president's executive orders over the weekend was this to me is part of a very troubling pattern on the president's part. He's now taken to governing by executive fiat. Yes. Uh, he, we have federal police uh, on the streets in cities across the country. Uh, the president just sort of blithely ignored and ignores court orders and congressional actions, spends money on his wall that Congress didn't appropriate. And, you know, I've always been very leery of saying this because it, it's the connotation is so ugly. But I, I, I smell the strong whiff of fascism in the air. And I really hate saying that because it's a really extreme thing to say that a president in the United States is acting like Benito Mussolini. Uh, but to me, this patent on Trump's part is very, very scary. And do you think it troubles voters at all? Or are they just happy to see someone take action? Again, I think that's the answer is that you're going to have a split there, right? There are some people who will forgive Trump anything. But, uh, you know, I don't think Trump is necessarily acting like Mussolini. Um, in my book, I, I talk about Henry Wallace, who was Roosevelt's uh, second vice president. And Wallace talked about what he referred to as Americanized fascism. He said it would be different than European fascism. It might not involve, you know, folks in jackboots and all the, the imagery that goes with it. But it would involve a, a, a deliberate diminishing of our constitutional and, and small d democratic structures to benefit a handful of very, very powerful people. And I, I think that warning is one we have to always keep in mind. The attorney general of Wisconsin, Josh Call, recently uh, talked about Trump employing what he referred to as fascist tactics. Uh, some members of the Senate and House have said the same thing. And, and that's different than calling somebody a fascist. What it really is saying is that you have a desperate, scared, dysfunctional politician who is starting to borrow from a toolbox of tactics that uh, is a very, very dangerous one. And even if he doesn't put on the whole cloak of fascism, if he simply borrows uh, from there, we end up in a situation where our democracy is uh, endangered, uh, where our, our governance is, is undermined. It, it's a very unhealthy place to be. And whatever word you use to call it out, fascist, authoritarian, totalitarian, you know, or just, just foul behavior, the bottom line is, that I think Trump is doing things that do scare a lot of Americans and cause a lot of Americans, even some conservative folks, to think that he doesn't have very much regard for our traditional system of checks and balances. Yeah, it's really uh, kind of scary. Uh, in a very short answer, uh, do you think the suit by the uh, New York Attorney General against the NRA is going to go anywhere and be a severe disruption to the National Rifle Association? The NRA says it won't. Uh, Tish James, the attorney general, says it will. Uh, let's see how, how the NRA won't blink unless the judge forces them to do so. So we'll see how far James gets with her case. But it has certainly focused attention on the NRA in an election year in ways that are dramatic. And I give Attorney General James credit for, for stepping up on this. I think it's a bold move. 
and whether a lot of people are paying it. Okay. Uh, I want to thank our guest in this half half hour, John Nichols, national political correspondent for The Nation and author of a book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. Thanks very much, John, for joining us today. I hope you can come back soon. And we'll be back after these messages with our provocative progressive political panel uh, with Bina Venkatraman and our own Mark Grimaldi. We'll be back right after these messages. I think it's under control. I'll tell you what. How? A thousand Americans are dying a day. They are dying. That's true. And you ha- it is what it is. Donald Trump's. This is uh, D- welcome. Uh, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, before we get to our provocative progressive political panel, uh, my uh, piece of my mind. Donald Trump's narcissistic personality is as much as a political problem at his dismal performance. Trump is the poor, poor, pitiful me president. The message the president sends to Americans mourning the deaths of so many friends and family members is, well, if you think you have problems, look what the pandemic has done to my presidency. The president's interview with Jonathan Swan of Axios was a revealing look into his self-absorbed and self-serving personality. His indifference to the death of thousands of people and his lack of concerns to the friends and family uh, were on full display in the interview. The president swung and missed when he had the chance to offer condolences to Americans for the pandemic death of more than 150,000 people and the loss of civil rights icon, John Lewis. The best Trump could do to respond to the deaths of so many Americans was to say, it is what it is. When he had the opportunity to mourn the death of Representative John Lewis of Georgia, the only thing he could say about the legacy uh, of the champion of voting rights was, he chose not to come to my inauguration. Trump started his, his lack of remorse pain and suffering of Americans is much of a problem as his failure to fight the raging pandemic. And my take on the presidential race in the Hill every Monday. Just Google muckback.com front slash ad dash fan. Now it's time for our provocative political panel. Provocative our guest today is Bina Truman, editorial page editor of the Boston Globe. Previously, journalist, Times, and served as a senior advisor for climate change innovation.
Krishna JV. That's P-I-N-A-J-V. Joining me on the panel today is progressive political activist Mark Ramal. Mark on the get out vote operation several Democratic presidential debates, including Biden. Mark has also involved in campaign finance and cancer research. His Twitter handle is Mark J. Kamal. Okay, panel, welcome. Uh, let's start with this. Uh, in the next few days, Joe Biden is going to announce the choice uh, for his running mate. Uh, Bina, let's start with you. Do you think it's going to be Kyla Harris? Well, I, I make it a habit of not predicting the future. It's one of the things that I write about in the Optimist Telescope is that um, if, you, if you're in the business of predicting the future, you're going to end up being wrong a fair amount of the time. So I will say that um, I think it's likely to be uh, Kamala Harris and that I do think that that's probably an appropriate choice. If I were sitting in the Biden campaign right now, thinking about who's going to um, energize the campaign, uh, who's going to be really good at explaining policy positions and breathing life into them on the campaign trail, uh, who adds a little bit of star power and charisma and youth to counterbalance uh, uh, the aspects of, of charisma that the, uh, the vice, uh, sorry, the presidential candidate will have. Uh, I think she is a highly credible choice. Okay, let me ask you this question. We've had a black president in Barack Obama. Do you think it's going to be a big deal uh, for Americans uh, if he does choose, uh, if Biden does choose a uh, black woman as his running mate, or is it just now that we've had a black president, it's not a big deal anymore? I, I think it is a big deal. I think, think it's significant, uh, both symbolically as well as uh, on the substance of it. So. I think from the point of view of who's going to win the election, let me just say this as an aside, uh, probably it's going to be more of a referendum on Donald Trump and Donald Trump's handling, mishandling of this pandemic, Donald Trump's economy, uh, which is tanking and facing serious crisis uh, with rising unemployment and beyond. But in terms of just what it does for American politics, what it does for the Democratic Party, uh, what it does in terms of symbolizing who belongs in leadership, who has access to the highest levels of leadership in the country. In that sense, I think it's quite significant to have a black woman on the presidential ticket, uh, to have in this critical moment for racial justice, to have a black woman uh, who ideally will champion and be part of that uh, effort, of course, alongside uh, the presidential candidate, I think is is something that should not be scoffed at. And uh, I think it also means a lot. You know, I remember the young boy who famously was captured on photograph touching the hair of President Obama in the White House asking, after he asked, is, you know, is your hair like mine? And the president responded, it is, and why don't you, why don't you give, touch it? And that moment being so powerful. So I think just generationally, too, what this signals to young people in America, uh, young people who've grown up uh, with facing the most severe discrimination and injustice in our society, uh, having a black woman in that role, uh, even just on the ticket, I think uh, has an impact, a ripple effect that should not be underestimated. Uh, Mark, do you think the choice of 
Kamala Harris or another black woman. It might be Susan Rice or Karen Bass, although it certainly seems like it's going to be Kamala Harris. Uh, do you think it has special significance in, in the wake of the, the racial uh, violence across the country? I would say absolutely. Um, I think to have representation is such a powerful thing. And, and Bina just gave a great example um, for, you know, our youth in this country who are especially affected, um, especially, you know, young black men and the amount of police pressure that they face in their communities versus um, you know, their white counterparts or, or sometimes even just older counterparts. I think to have representation in government is, you know, absolutely crucial. And I think that you see that um, throughout the country when you see these demands for change, you want um, your reflection in your government um, because it, it's easier to see empathy through people who have been through it, you know, who have walked in, in your shoes. Um, and when you have someone who right now I think can can be part of, of the highest levels of government and say, I see you, and, and they have instant credibility because they have had to walk down the street and or, or, or been stopped in a store, you know, when they've just been simply shopping and they've been labeled, you know, dangerous or something to that effect because of the color of their skin. Uh, and I think to have that type of representation is really important. And to speak particularly about Harris, um, I really like her as a choice. I think she does bring a lot of excitement to the ticket. Um, she's a great campaigner, um, which she's shown, you know, in the Democratic primary. And additionally, I think the way that she uh, stood up against Brett Kavanaugh and uh, before he was um Put on the Supreme Court during the hearings, as well as uh, more recently, Bill Barr, um, when she questioned him both in the Senate Judiciary Committee. I thought she did a very good job of that, and, it, and it's a preview of the type of battle we could see in the vice presidential debate with people during home home during the pandemic. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot more eyes on those debates than previous uh, debates because people, let's face it, there's no, <laughs> college football just got canceled basically today. There's going to be a lot less that people are watching, and the pandemic is on their mind because that's why they're home. So this is going to affect a lot of people, and I think a lot of eyes are going to be watching. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely excited to see if she's the uh, nominee the way that uh, she'll face off against Mike Pence in a debate. Okay, we're going to a break to our audio audience. Uh, we will uh, continue uh, the interview uh, with our provocative progressive political panel uh, with our audience on Periscope TV. If you want to uh, view the show as well as listen to it, uh, you can go to periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. I have my own channel on the Internet. That's kind of a scary thought. But we'll be back uh, in a couple of minutes for our audio audience with the provocative progressive a political panel with uh, uh, with Boston Globe editorial page editor Bina Ventitraman and progressive activist Mark Grimaldi. So uh, we'll hope you uh, will stay tuned. Uh, we'll be back with our audio audience in a couple of minutes, and we're going to continue this interview with our audience on Facebook Live and Periscope TV. Welcome back to our audio audience uh, with uh, 
Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. We're in the middle of our provocative progressive political panel uh, with uh, Bina Ventertraman, who is the editorial page editor of the Boston Globe and progressive political activist Mark J. Grimaldi. Uh, let me ask you one question, one more question about the U.S. Senate primary in Massachusetts between Ed Markey and uh, uh, Joe Kennedy. Uh, from what I've seen, the race is close. Uh, and it strikes me just from watching it that uh, it is close, uh, despite the fact that you have uh, an incumbent senator who's been in office now since uh, 2013. Uh, and uh, despite the fact that he's been a United States senator for six or seven years now, uh, it, uh, Joe Kennedy has mounted a very strong challenge to him and seems to be either, you know, the, the polling shows, I think, that the race is very close. Uh, why do you think uh, Joe Kennedy uh, has been able to uh, uh, advance so far taking, uh, taking on a well-entrenched incumbent? Well, you can't underestimate the power of the Kennedy name in Massachusetts. And in fact, uh, looking back at our records, when we endorsed Ed Markey in the Senate primary, it seems to me, I haven't 100% confirmed this, but the Globe has never endorsed, uh, the editorial board has never endorsed against a Kennedy uh, in any, um, it seems, any major race, at least. Uh, so the institutions, the, the uh, electorate rec recognizes the name. He certainly has been uh, a good congressman on, from the sort of progressive point of view uh, um, from the 4th Congressional District. Uh, over these past uh, several years, he's created a good track record of making inroads uh, to communities, to Latinx communities, communities of color. And so I think he's mounted, it's kind of both, you know, I'm not sure that a person who had no name um, and, and a surgeon, insurgent coming from nowhere would have been able to mount an effective challenge to Senator Markey. Uh, but obviously in this case, he, he has been able to do that. He has a fair amount of star power um, nationally as a Kennedy as well. Okay, let's go back to the national scene now. Uh, this came into my head as I was uh, getting ready for the show. Uh, let, let's say Joe Biden does win the presidential election. Uh, we still have 90 days, and I think Trump will make some kind of comeback. Now, whether it's enough comeback to uh, overcome Joe Biden's lead, I don't know. But let's just... Uh, assume that Joe Biden does win the presidential race. You know, it struck me, even if uh, if Biden wins the presidential race, he's going to have his hands full. Uh, the pandemic is still raging across America. Uh, it doesn't sound like it's going to abate. Now, I've heard, you know, scientists say by the time it's all said and done, we could have 300,000 dead Americans from the pandemic. Uh, the economy is in a shambles. Uh, and not only that, uh, but uh, climate change is rearing its ugly head around the corner. Uh, it also seems to me that uh, our relationship with our NATO allies are in complete disrepair, and Joe Biden is going to have to repair those. Uh, my question, uh, Bina, is where does Joe Biden start if he wins this election? What kind of president do you think he's going to be? Well, I 
can't predict the future of how he's going to be, but I think the moment really calls for uh, visionary, transformative policies. And, you know, um, when we were interviewing Ed Markey for the Senate primary race we just finished talking about, he talked about this being a sort of FDR, New Deal kind of moment. And I think he's right about that. And I think a number of other politicians have been pointing to that, which is to say that there are enough people um, who recognize that there's something fundamentally wrong with our politics that could sanction and give rise to Donald Trump. There are enough people who recognize that the profound uh, inequality and racial injustice in this country is manifesting in the pandemic and the harms and the deaths from the pandemic in a way that is just intolerable for the future for our society, that we need an um, investment in education, in student debt relief, in programs for uh, affordable health care and beyond. And so I think it's a time to kind of actually think of comprehensively and be visionary. And what I hope, what I hope a Joe Biden presidency will do is be up to that task to really be the architect of a kind of set widening and deepening of the social safety net, of a real kind of policy-based uh, aggressive approach to climate change and racial injustice. Uh, and I think that that is the opportunity that presents itself. And obviously it's a very big job and there's a lot of tactical things that need to be handled, including vaccine rollout and so on and so forth. The moment that the new president gets into office, assuming that happens, and uh, but that should not get in the way of recognizing that the crisis has become so profound from an economic point of view that it creates the need for large enough stimulus, large enough programs and policies that can actually be uh, in greater proportion than possibly it could have been in a political moment before this pandemic. Uh, Mark, what do you think? It seems to me that Joe Biden, given the magnitude of problems he will have to deal with if he wins the election, will either be a very active, progressive, New Deal, FDR president, or if he doesn't, he's going to be a failure. What do you think? Well, I think both both of you have really brought up some strong points. Um, one thing that I'll just add that I think plays a lot into it is what if Vice President Biden becomes president-elect Biden, what is the balance of the Senate going to be? Because we saw the problems that President Obama ran into, even when they had a supermajority um, after Senator Ted Kennedy passed away, and we thought health care was going to be something that didn't happen. Thankfully, the House was able to uh, still make it happen with the Affordable Care Act, but you saw how much that took uh, to move. And I think you know, even with the the best um, projections, you know, Democrats will maybe be able to pick up 51, 52 seats. Um, there's also a potentially uh, a high chance that it would be 50-50 with uh, potentially Vice President Kamala Harris uh, casting the tie-breaking vote for a lot of legislation. So um, if that's the case, then I think they do need to go bold with something that they've talked about, which is eliminating the filibuster. Um, Senator Sanders, you know, you talked about that with John Nichols, his relationship with Vice President being uh, very strong. He's come around uh, on the filibuster in some areas, eliminating it, that is. Um, Mitch McConnell's already done it for Supreme Court justices, you know, pretty much anything he wants, uh, including trying to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. So I think if the Democrats are willing to go bold and, and get behind Vice President Biden, um, if he is able to become president, 
then I think you can you can do that. You have a huge majority in the House that's only going to grow if it is, in fact, Vice President Biden who becomes president-elect and you have the Senate um, power in the Senate, then I think you go after it. Um, you absolutely have to be bold because you're going to be cast as socialist almost no matter what you do by the right wing. So forget yeah, about that's... that. It's what are, what are your voters and, my, and independents asking for? They want this pandemic over with, and they want to get back to being able to work and support their families. So do what is needed to make that happen. And, you know, damn whatever else, you know, those who are going to criticize you anyway are going to say. Um, and those people who want to work with you and get back to what Republicans formerly stood for before the Trump era. Um, I think you try to work with those people because there's going to be an opportunity for them to redefine what the Republican Party is. And right now it is not a label anybody wants um, outside of maybe, you know, a Tulsa Trump rally. No, certainly not. Uh, one quick question, Bina. Uh, any comments on the uh, New York AG suit against the National Rifles Association? Well, I think it's a very interesting suit. I think for a lot of people uh, from the American public who've been watching the NRA from either a dispassionate point of view or from a critical point of view, uh, it's not surprising to hear that this organization, which has stoked the fears of Americans using shoddy science, uh, tried to make people believe they need to arm themselves, um, done things like campaigns that, that show um, show issues around gun violence in a very uh, distorted way, I think it's not surprising that they would also be um, financially mismanaging their funds and uh, resources in a way that's not credible. No, uh, not. So I think that this is an interesting suit. Uh, whether it will be successful over what time period, I think, is the real question. I'm, I, I don't think it's going to, you know, put a put a bullet in the head of the NRA uh, before this election, you know, um, or even the next one. Possibly. Sadly, that's all the time we have today. Uh, that's all we got for Deadline DC. I want to thank our guest, uh, John Nichols, the national political correspondent for the nation. Uh, Bina Venkatraman, the editorial page editor of the Boston Globe and progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. I'm here every Monday at 3 o'clock Eastern Time, p.m. Eastern Time, if the Lord is willing and the creek don't rise and Donald Trump doesn't declare martial law, which seems like an increasing possibility every day to me. This is Brad Bannon. Stay strong, stay safe, and don't drink the Clorox or the Kool-Aid. I don't care what the president says. Thanks for watching and listening today. We'll be back next Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you. Add a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from, with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day. Add a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from, with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day.